Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is Lucas Rappel. He's an assistant professor at Brown University, teaching history of science and capitalism in 19th century North America. We're excited to have him on today as the author of Assembling the Dinosaur, Fossil Hunters, Tycoons, and the Making of a Spectacle. The book's brand new through the Harvard University Press. Lucas Rappel, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, Lucas, before we begin, why don't you just take a few moments and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a historian? Yeah, sure. So I'm a historian of science, uh, but also a historian of capitalism, focusing mostly on kind of the history of the life sciences, the environmental sciences and the earth sciences and how they intersect with the history of capitalism in roughly kind of the long 19th century United States, although I'm kind of interested more broadly in kind of global entanglements between science and capitalism in what you might call the modern world. And how I became a historian, I mean, that's a hard question to answer. I think all of your listeners probably have a similar sort of story of of just always having been interested in history, but maybe a little more specifically in my case, how I became interested in the particular topics that I work on. I was actually not born in the United States. I was born in Europe, in Switzerland. I moved to the U.S. when I was an adolescent. I was like 10 years old. And so I think part of the reason I study American history, I assume has to have something to do with the fact that I've kind of always felt, although I'm definitely an American, I would say at this point, still in some ways kind of always have felt a bit like an outsider in this strange and weird place that is the United States. And so I've always maybe wanted to kind of understand how the United States became the kind of place that it is. And then with the history of science, I I suspect it must be related to the fact that my father is a scientist. He's a biologist. And he works for a natural history museum in Chicago, actually, the Field Museum of Natural History. That's like, in fact, why we moved from Europe to the United States. So you got to he used to work in a natural history museum in Zurich and then got a position at the Field Museum in Chicago. So I am sure that must have something to do with the decision to study uh, natural history, the history of natural history and the history of biology. Yeah. So how did you come to the idea for the book? Yeah. So as I m- mentioned, because I kind of grew up around natural history museums, I've always been interested in that. Um, uh, but when I started my PhD, actually, initially, I was planning on writing a dissertation on a very different topic. I was going to write about cell biology and heredity research, so what's called cytogenetics in late 19th century Germany. And I was spending a summer, the summer after my second year of grad school, in various archives in Germany and was just quite disappointed by what I was finding there, or rather actually what I was not finding there. So a lot of the archival material that I wanted to look at, it turns out, a lot of it had been destroyed during the Second World War. And some of it that wasn't destroyed, a lot of it uh, had survived in a basement of a biological research institute that was flooded multiple times during the war because of bombing raids. And so the the material was just very, very hard to make out. Um, And at the same time, as I was doing that research, I was kind of working on what I initially thought would be a sort of side project, uh, an an essay, what I thought would be a standalone essay based on a paper that I wrote actually my first semester for an environmental history course on the history of uh, dinosaur fossil collecting, inspired by um, a famous dinosaur that's actually in the Field Museum. It's called Sue, which was collected by uh, commercial fossil hunters on land owned by a a rancher that belongs to the South Dakota Sioux tribe uh, during the 1990s. And controversy around ownership of that specimen and was subsequently auctioned off by the U.S. government on behalf of this um, Native American rancher and purchased by the Fuel Museum. So I became very interested in, uh, right, I was thinking I would write this paper, a kind of single essay on the kind of prehistory of 20th century fossil hunting, so kind of 19th century fossil hunting in the United States. Um, And I was going to archives and natural history museums and just finding all this amazing stuff, not just about this particular uh, set of things I was interested in, but just a kind of wealth of information, more than I could possibly imagine what to do with. So it's kind of the contrast between sort of the disappointment of one archival experience and uh, the riches of another kind of set of archives that kind of, um, I think, 
encouraged me or convinced me to switch topics and change from initially what I thought was going to be my dissertation on cytogenetics to the history of dinosaur paleontology. Yeah, I want to come back to that piece about what got you started. But first, I want to ask you about something you say in your introduction, that dinosaurs tell us a lot about ourselves. And you point to the differences between contemporary knowledge about dinosaurs and that of the Gilded Age. Can you explain what you mean, how dinosaurs tell us a great deal about ourselves? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So one of the things that initially attracted me to dinosaurs as a topic of research for the the historian of science is that dinosaurs are these kind of immensely interesting objects, but they're also these kind of protean objects. So in the introduction to the book, I compare dinosaurs to a kind of chimera. What I mean by that, chimeras are organisms uh, the word comes from Greek mythology. They're organisms that are made up of different parts where different parts uh, have kind of independent origins. So, for example, a centaur might be a kind of chimera. And the claim I try to make is that dinosaurs are a kind of chimera in the sense that uh, some parts of the dinosaur are a product of biological evolution. So um, a product of kind of natural processes at work, including not just evolution, but also processes of fossilization uh, and other sort of geological um, uh, forces at play. But other parts of the dinosaur are a product of human um, culture. So uh, both the history of science, uh, the way human beings have collected these objects and assembled them into amazing displays, but also kind of human imagination, because usually the material evidence that has survived from prehistory, from the Mesozoic period, many tens, if not in some cases, hundreds of millions of years ago into the present day, those fossil traces are often quite incomplete. And even when the fossils are extant, they're often distorted and, and sort of influenced by the process of fossilization in various ways. It makes it quite difficult to actually reconstruct, to turn a kind of dinosaur fossil into something that resembles a recognizable animal. And so there's a lot of kind of inference and imagination that goes into assembling these fossils into the kinds of museum displays that we're all familiar with. So because of this kind of chimerical status of the dinosaur, that it's both a product of biological evolution and geology, but also a product of human history, of uh, the history of science, and the claim is broader kind of cultural forces that inspire the kind of imaginative activities of these scientists. The claim is that therefore we can learn a lot about not just the history of life on Earth, not just the evolution of different kinds of organisms and their extinction, but also quite a lot about ourselves, quite a lot about human cultural history. Right. And you talk at one point near the end about the differences between feathered dinosaurs in China that are recently being discovered and how different they are from a popular imagination of these gray, drab-looking dinosaurs, these beasts discovered in the 19th century. And you say this is a difference not just in science, although it is a difference in science, but also in capitalism. What do you mean? Sure, yeah. So this really gets to the heart of the argument in the book. So a claim that I make, or I would say maybe the claim that I make in the book is that you can't really understand the history of 19th and early 20th century paleontology without understanding the history of capitalism, in particular the history of American capitalism and the relationship between science and capitalism in the United States. We can talk more about why that's the case. Mm -hmm. But uh, the book sort of ends in the the last chapter of the book ends roughly with the start of the Great Depression. So it's a, a story that's mostly focused on a period I call the Long Gilded Age, so kind of the Gilded Age and Reconstruction period. But in the conclusion to the book, I try to take things up to the present day. So I look at developments in 20th and 21st century paleontology. And there's been a huge number of changes, and this, I think, reflects these kind of claim I made earlier about the chimerical nature of dinosaurs. There's a huge number of changes that dinosaurs have undergone. They look completely different now than they did in the late 19th or early 20th century. So rather than being these drab, sort of stupid, dull-witted, slow-moving creatures that inhabited uh, a kind of prehistoric world, now they're usually thought of, uh, for various reasons, uh, as entirely different kinds of animals, having been... um, social, active, perhaps even warm-blooded, and covered in, uh, many of them covered in colorful feathers, so much more kind of bird-like creatures. And a lot of those changes um, have to do with new fossils that have been found in the last 20 or 30 years, uh, not in the American West, which is where a lot of the excitement for paleontology in the late 19th and early 20th century uh, was located, but rather more recently in northeastern China, primarily a region called a region called Liaoning, which is kind of northeast of Beijing, uh, not too far from North Korea. So kind of, if you can imagine, sort of in between Beijing and, and uh, North Korea, uh, near what used to be called Manchuria. And these dinosaurs 
have all sorts of special features about them, but one of them is that many of them have been discovered with intact feather structures so that the fossils themselves contain fossilized trace evidence of feathers. And so paleontologists have been able to use these new fossils from northeastern China to reconstruct uh, a very different vision of dinosaurs. Dinosaurs that, are, again, as I said, are much, much more uh, bird-like and uh, have just all sorts of different anatomical features. But also from those anatomical features, paleontologists have inferred all sorts of different behavioral features as well. And I think we can connect this to the history of capitalism in all sorts of interesting ways, although the story is quite complex. But the main, I think, um, thing that I would want to kind of mention here is just that the kind of migration of capitalism uh, industrial capitalism from Europe and North America to becoming a much more global phenomenon. So the kind of integration of global supply chains, uh, which of course has integrated China in such a profound way into global capitalism in the last roughly half century or so. Or so. And uh, at the same time as that's happened, the science of paleontology too has migrated to China. So there's some really exciting parallels there, I think. Yeah. So let's go back to that early prospecting period. It's out in the American West, and it begins what you say is a short-lived world of fossil hunters and its connection also to the mineral industry. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, sure. So the I should say the first dinosaurs that were discovered to science, and one thing I'd also like to talk about if, if you're interested in is kind of what it means for something to be a discovery, what, what we mean when we call something a discovery, because of course people have been interested in dinosaurs for um you know, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years, uh, including in places like China, but also in the American West, Native American. There's all sorts of fascinating evidence that Native American tribes, uh, including the Lakota and Dakota Sioux, for example, have a longstanding interest in dinosaurs. But the word dinosaur uh, was coined in the mid-19th century by a British anatomist named Richard Owen based on fossil evidence that was discovered in the 1820s and 30s in England. So the first um, fossils that to which the scientific name dinosauria were attached were found in the early 19th century in England. But when I say the word dinosaur, most of the kinds of creatures that I suspect you and your listeners uh, imagine, creatures like Stegosaurus, Brontosaurus, T-Rex, creatures like that, uh, the kind of iconic dinosaurs, these are really creatures that whose fossil remains were discovered to science in the late 19th century, in the 1870s, 80s, and 90s in the American West. And they were discovered, interestingly, not primarily by uh, trained paleontologists. So there was a kind of small nascent paleontological community that took shape in the late 19th century in the United States. Uh, but most of these early fossils from the American West were uh, uncovered and transmitted to paleontologists, not by trained scientists, but rather by people, white settlers who kind of colonized the American West uh, in hopes of uh, kind of securing an economic livelihood. So people who primarily were engaged in the region's explosive extractive economy at the time. So there was a really close connection between the early discovery of dinosaurs in the American West by white uh, settlers of European origins, uh, who then subsequently transmitted those discoveries to paleontologists and the booming extractive mineral economy in the American West. So one of the arguments I try to make in the book is that uh, early uh, discoveries of dinosaurs uh, uh, that were transmitted to paleontologists were uh, treated as an economic commodity in much the same way as other sorts of scarce natural resources that one could find buried deep underground were also treated as a kind of economic commodity. You talk too about the role of museums and their nonprofit status. And that, you say, is actually important for understanding science and capitalism in this moment too. Why is that? Yeah, so whereas the earth, the, the kind of earliest... Um, Dinosaurs from the American West that began to circulate among the paleontological communities were, as I said, kind of extracted as economic resources and sold as a kind of commodity. Quite quickly, this uh, uh, world of kind of independent frontier fossil hunters selling dinosaur bones to paleontologists on the East Coast was replaced by a sort of a new regime in which large philanthropically funded natural history museums began to proliferate in kind of large metropolitan centers in the United States, places like Chicago, the Field Museum of Natural History, in New York, the uh, American Museum of Natural History, as well as Pittsburgh, uh, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. There's a few others as well. You might mention the, um, uh, the Peabody Museum at Yale University as a kind of early example of this, too. You discuss the importance of these museums, and you have all these moments early on where you have these Gilded Age capitalists gather around for the spectacle of the unveiling of the dinosaur. Could you talk about why dinosaurs were so symbolically powerful in this moment in the Gilded Age? Yeah, sure. So one thing that I became really interested in is why did so many of the most famous 
uh, most kind of recognizable late 19th century American capitalists, people like Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan, Marshall Field. Why did so many of these people not just build natural history museums at this time in the 1880s, 1890s, but also why did they, why were they so keen to fill those museums with dinosaurs in particular? There's a complicated and kind of, I think, fascinating story to do with that. And one sort of element of that story that maybe I'd want to highlight for your listeners is uh, uh, the role that natural history played in bourgeois class formation in late 19th century America. So a lot of the wealthy industrialists, Andrew Carnegie is perhaps the best example of this, that made such immense fortunes in many ways off the kind of booming extractive and industrial economy that proliferated across 19th century America, uh, late 19th century America. A lot of these people hailed from a fairly humble artisanal background. So Andrew Carnegie, for example, was born into a family of fairly impoverished handloom weavers in Scotland and ended up making an immense fortune in the steel industry. So people like Carnegie did not often did not kind of fit naturally or easily into the elite social class that they came to inhabit once they made these immense fortunes. And one way that they uh, sought to display and perform their bourgeois social distinction to themselves and each other was by engaging in acts of conspicuous consumption, what the uh, political economist Thorsten Bevelin called conspicuous consumption. So collecting all sorts of uh, rare and opulent objects like artworks uh, and so on and so forth, but also natural history specimens. So natural history collecting was very important to these people. And so uh, natural history was a kind of favorite leisure pastime pursuit for the American bourgeoisie in the late 19th century. Uh, At the same time, though, uh, uh, these avid... Uh, these wealthy capitalists became avid philanthropists as a way of not just kind of demonstrating their bourgeois class status, but also sort of showing off their Republican virtues. Uh, So in the book, I describe philanthropy as a form of conspicuous generosity. And in the Carnegie's case, also very explicitly kind of showing that American capitalism could be altruistic as well as competitive, that it could work for the good of all in society, and therefore kind of ameliorate some of the social, really uh, profound social unrest that... um, uh, was uh, kind of um, proliferating or, uh, you know, that was becoming quite prevalent in late 19th century America. And so dinosaurs uh, very quickly emerged as a, a particularly good way of, uh, kind of particularly visible way of both celebrating the awesome power and prestige of American capitalists like Andrew Carnegie, building these huge museums and filling them with the largest and most spectacular dinosaurs, but also at the same time, building natural history museums that would be popular among a large and often quite working class audience. So it's very important to people like Carnegie and Marshall Field and J.P. Morgan that these museums that they were building, these philanthropic museums, not only be a testament to their wealth, but also their, as I said earlier, their Republican virtues. And for that argument to succeed, it was really crucial that these museums attract a large audience and hopefully a socially diverse audience. And dinosaurs were seen as a particularly good way of doing that. So how does the involvement and investment of capitalists like Carnegie and J.P. Morgan influence the science of paleontology? Yeah, there's a really profound um, influence of all sorts of kinds, but maybe I'll just highlight one in particular here. It, there's a, um, it influenced the practice of paleontology in pretty deep ways. So we can also talk about kind of the way dinosaurs were represented in these museums, but first maybe I'll just kind of highlight some of the ways that the practice of paleontology changed. So these institutions, as I said, were really designed to kind of showcase the philanthropic generosity of their wealthy trustees. And for that reason, it was absolutely essential that these institutions not be seen as for-profit entities, but rather seen as non-profit entities. So in fact, it's in exactly this moment, this sort of last couple of decades of the 19th century, that the modern distinction between for- and non-profit corporations emerged. And these natural history museums were all organized as non-profit corporations, American Museum of Natural History being one example. And so it was absolutely essential in order for that uh, kind of for those institutions to uh, inhabit that status, that kind of nonprofit status convincingly, it was essential that the objects that they put on display there be stripped of their commodity status. Um, And so this kind of, what we started off talking about, this kind of world of independent fossil hunters, uh, uh, often with ties to the mineral industry, who were selling uh, dinosaurs for a profit to paleontologists who were buying them often with um, their own personal wealth, that world was replaced by these non large nonprofit institutions who um, were extremely um, suspicious and reluctant to deal with uh, uh, these kind of independent fossil hunters uh, because 
those independent fossil hunters kind of reinforced the notion that dinosaurs were a kind of commodity not fundamentally different from other sorts of economic commodities like gold, silver, and coal, which of course is precisely the opposite of what a philanthropist like Carnegie wanted to insist on, right? For, for someone like Carnegie, it was essential that dinosaurs be seen, dinosaurs and other kind of natural history specimens and objects of science be seen as something higher and more noble and uh, kind of divorced from the marketplace, right? Philanthropy was supposed to be something that was fundamentally different from the kind of business activity. So it was essential for these uh, dinosaurs to be decommodified. So rather than purchasing their specimens from freelance collectors, as paleontologists had been doing, uh, not just in, in the late 19th century in the United States, but indeed for uh, roughly as long as there had been a science of natural history, these museums very actively began to integrate backwards into the acquisition of fossil specimens, into the acquisitions of scientific specimens by sending out their own in-house expeditions. So the science of paleontology was kind of reorganized from this kind of division of labor between independent collectors and trained naturalists who were doing the work of kind of interpreting the fossils that that they were purchasing to um, this community that engaged in both the kind of uh, sending out expeditions to the American West to collect specimens and then bringing those specimens back to the museum, often on railroads that were owned by some of the same people who were funding the museums, and then studying those uh, specimens in the museum and then mounting spectacular displays, as I said, to attract these large audiences into those museums as well. To get at that question about decommodification, as you talked about, I want to read a quote from your book. You write, As dinosaurs were assembled into an icon of science during the long Gilded Age, the political economy of American capitalism revealed that it valued the deep past as much as, if not more than, the next earnings report. That's a fascinating, almost contrarian take. Could you expand on that for us and tell us a little bit more about what you mean? Yeah, sure. Um, So that's a, a section that you're quoting from in the introduction where I try to make an argument that, um, by looking at the entanglement between the science of paleontology and the culture of American capitalism, we can see, uh, I think what I describe as the deep time horizons of American capitalism. So what I'm trying to do there is sort of make an argument, kind of intervene in a literature uh, that uh, it mostly comes from economic sociology that tends to view, in fact, kind of essentialized capitalism often as this kind of very forward-looking activity. So the question that many economic sociologists are asking themselves is, What's distinctive about the political economy of capitalism and and what differentiates capitalism from other forms of organizing a political economy? And one of the answers, obviously, is a huge debate and a huge, uh, there's a huge literature on this question. And one of the answers that um, many people gravitate towards, and this is something that in some ways even shows up in the writings of Karl Marx, is that capitalism has this interesting kind of temporal disposition, that it's a very kind of future-oriented uh, enterprise. So, what makes cap- the claim is that what makes capitalism distinctive is this insistence on taking a portion of today's earnings and reinvesting it into the productive capacities of a society in order to generate more income in the future. So, that's what we might call investment, right? So, if you think of someone like Andrew Carnegie, the idea is that Carnegie borrows money uh, from his social network to build a factory, takes some of the profits from that factory and reinvest it into the production process so as to produce more steel more cheaply and thereby increase his profit margins. And you kind of keep that cycle going in order to kind of fuel the uh, productive enterprise of the entire political economy. So in order to do that, in order to kind of organize one's political economy in this way, one has to really see the future as a sort of uh, privileged space in which profits are located. The future is the place where money is made. So the future is where uh, kind of the action is for capitalism, according to these economic sociologists. And what I'm trying to say in this book is that I don't disagree with that. I think it's very clearly very true that the future is hugely important for the political economy of modern capitalism, but the past is equally important. So if you um, uh, look at the why capitalists like Andrew Carnegie or J.P. Morgan were so interested in the history, excuse me, in the practice of paleontology and creating these paleontological displays, uh, I think an argument that I try to make is one reason why they did, why they were so interested in this is that they look to the past. They look at the, to the future as a place where profits were made. They look to the past as a place where legitimacy could be derived. So if you could make money from the future, you could derive legitimacy from the past. Now, of course, that's also, you know, just like people have always wondered about what's going to be the case in the future. People have also often looked to the past as a source of legitimacy, right? So this is, uh, kind of why people often tell stories about kind of the great heroes that preceded them, right? There's a kind of old 
part of human culture. But the science of paleontology allows us to push the narrative of that kind of our, our temporal horizon backwards into the deep past. So it's not just kind of lived memory that becomes important as a site for legitimizing one's present, but even kind of prehistoric past, the past that preceded uh, uh, the experience of anyone who was alive or anyone who knew anyone who was alive at a particular time. And uh, this connects kind of uh, to the argument I try to make about the importance of capitalism for kind of legitimizing the political economy, excuse me, the importance of philanthropy for legitimizing the political economy of capitalism. So the claim is that one reason why so many capitalists like Carnegie were such avid philanthropists is that the late 19th century was a period not just of immense wealth production, but also like our own period, a period of immense rising social inequality, which made capitalism a particularly um, uh, kind of controversial mode of economic production. There was huge and often quite bloody labor unrest in the late 19th century, famous strikes, including at the Carnegie Steel Mills, right, for example, the Homestead Strike. Um, And capitalists like Carnegie were really, I think, genuinely concerned that there was a sort of revolutionary fervor that was uh, kind of spreading through popular culture in the late 19th century, which might lead to an overthrow of the political economy of capitalism. And so philanthropy was seen as a way of kind of shoring up the kind of social and cultural foundations of this system of economic production that was so profitable for people like Carnegie by creating immense temples of culture, of art, of science that would attract a large public. And again, here the claim is that one of the kind of main ways that uh, people were drawn into these temples of science was through popular displays like dinosaurs. So the prehistory was kind of leveraged as a way of giving legitimacy to the present mode of economic production. So it's not just the future that matters for capitalism, but the deep past matters equally as much. Well, one of the things you say that this idea of the deep past orients capitalists to is notions of evolution and extinction, which you say helps bolster progressive era reforms. Could you talk more about the relationship then between these ideas of evolution and extinction and the progressive era? Yeah, sure. So this gets to something that you asked about earlier, which is how the culture of capitalism influenced the science of paleontology. And earlier I talked about how it influenced the practice of paleontology, sort of restructuring the social structure of the paleontological community. I think here, this this question really gets at the sort of second half of that process of uh, how capitalism shapes paleontology. And, And here we can get at some of how the way dinosaurs were imagined and displayed in the late 19th century in natural history museums like the New York Museum of Natural History or the Field Museum in Chicago uh, kind of uh, uh, can be seen as in some ways kind of reflecting some of the preoccupations, uh, fantasies, but also fears and anxieties of late 19th, early 20th century capitalism. So kind of capitalism during America's long gilded age. So one thing that I was really struck by, and I'm surely not the first person to be struck by this, I think many others have been before, uh, is the fact that dinosaurs, when they were displayed in these museums, were always displayed either in isolation from one another. So either they were shown as, shown as kind of solitary brutes, solitary monstrous behemoths from the prehistoric, or if they were shown interacting with one another, those interactions always revolved around acts of extreme violence, usually acts of predation. So either a dinosaur would be shown by themselves or if one or more dinosaurs were interacting with each other, usually one of them was, they were fighting each other or one of them was eating the other one or something like that. And that still in some ways tends to be true for a lot of museums today. Although uh, here's where some of these kind of more recent developments about feathered dinosaurs and dinosaurs being these much more active and cooperative and bird-like creatures uh, uh, has kind of changed the way dinosaurs are often displayed. Okay, so I was kind of interested why is this? Why would dinosaurs be shown as these kind of ruthlessly competitive creatures? And you might think the first kind of hypothesis you might come up with, and this is something that, in fact, previous historians have tried to argue, is that, oh, this is obviously an expression of social Darwinism, right? This is late 19th century kind of evolutionary ethics, uh, people projecting the competitive ethos of late 19th century American capitalism onto the natural world as a way of sort of naturalizing and thereby legitimizing uh, uh, this competitive uh, cutthroat mode of economic production. I just didn't kind of, that seemed implausible to me. I didn't buy that sort of argument for a couple of reasons. One of which is that if you look at the history of science during this period, if you look at scientists in the very end of the 19th and early 20th century in the United States, especially paleontologists like uh, Edward Drinker Cope, who's one of the main paleontologists 
uh, or his student, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who became the lead paleontologist at the New York Natural History Museum. They were not particularly Darwinian in their approach to evolutionary theory. So they did not particularly think that competition and survival of the fittest was really what drove evolutionary change. So they, were, they didn't have a particularly Darwinian view of, um, of how the evolutionary process worked. They believed in evolution, but they had some alternative kind of mechanisms that they posited as being what drove evolutionary change, Lamarckian mechanisms rather than Darwinian ones for the most part. So that's part of the question there. It's like, well, it doesn't really seem like social Darwinism because the paleontologists weren't particularly Darwinian. At the same time, if you look at the political economy of American capitalism, people... Capitalists like Andrew Carnegie and even more so J.P. Morgan is probably the best example here, weren't particularly enthralled by the virtues of competition either. Rather, they tend to be much more monopolistic in their outlook. So the idea was that uh, there was a kind of general sense that um, the late 19th, early 20th century was a period of mass business consolidation in which all sorts of independent firms, independent small producers, family-owned and operated businesses were being consolidated into large corporately organized firms, often vertically integrated corporately organized firms. And someone like J.P. Morgan was a primary architect of these corporate consolidations. J.P. Morgan was an investment banker in Manhattan who financed and kind of oversaw a lot of these mergers and acquisitions, sort of structured a lot of these huge corporate behemoths. And these corporations had huge market shares, often monopolistic market shares, and uh, therefore were not competing with one another, but rather were sort of consolidating all these competitive individual enterprises into monopolistic uh, corporately organized firms. And so I was kind of, I thought, okay, well, so why would dinosaurs, this kind of symbol of American capitalism in some ways, why would they be dis- displayed as these competitive, ruthlessly competitive creatures in a period in which paleontologists were not particularly enamored by Darwinism? And their corporate benefactors, their kind of financial backers, also weren't particularly enamored by competition. And I think the the kind of answer that I came up with, or the argument that I try to make in the book, is that dinosaurs were inserted into a progressivist narrative about evolutionary change. So dinosaurs, the primitive, excuse me, the kind of ruthless competition of dinosaurs was seen to be a feature of the past, not the present. So it wasn't a way of kind of naturalizing the present, but rather a way of kind of showing the superiority of the present relative to the past. So if you think again about the story about corporate consolidation, the way that capitalists like J.P. Morgan sort of understood what they were doing was as a kind of progressivist evolutionary tendency within the political economy, that individual competitive firms come together to form cooperatively organized monopolistic corporations where individual divisions within the corporation are no longer competing with one another, but rather are working together to more efficiently organize some particular portion of the political economy, reduced waste, uh, bring down prices, and thereby, in their view, at least create prosperity. Of course, this was an extremely self-serving narrative. And in the same way, they thought the competitive uh, dinosaurs had gone extinct and the extinction of dinosaurs made room for, made ecological space for the evolution of a new kind of uh, uh, set of organisms, namely mammals, which, the, which were less competitive, less ruthless, uh, but rather kind of more intelligent and more cooperative and able to sort of manage their interactions with one another in a more kind of intellectual way. So there, there wasn't a kind of an act of naturalization going on where the political economy was being naturalized by comparing it to uh, the evolution of different kinds of organisms over time, but it wasn't a social Darwinist story. Rather, it was this kind of progressivist story where the extinction of dinosaurs had made way for a a new kind of world to evolve, the world of mammals and eventually human beings, kind of rational agents to evolve. And that was the world that was compared to uh, the contemporary situation of kind of the corporate consolidation of American capitalism in the early 20th century. Yeah, it's such a fascinating argument. And one of the things that it made me wonder as dinosaurs become this this fad, this craze, is how does the rest of the scientific community respond or react to the status of the dinosaur as a new icon of science? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I would say in the 19th and very early 20th century, dinosaurs and paleontology in general were extremely prestigious objects of scientific research in the United States. So prior to the American Civil War, the... Uh, the, the U.S. was considered to be a sort of a scientific backwater of sorts. So the kind of general sense among many Americans uh, in the early 19th century was that Europe was a kind of center of cultural production, including scientific production, and that the United States 
was this kind of crash commercialist place that was still catching up uh, to Europe when it came to uh, uh, its kind of refined culture, including the culture of science. Uh, that began to change in the late 19th century. Uh, and the science that really kind of initially took root in the United States that became kind of sufficiently prestigious that it could rival European science centers of learning like London or Paris or Vienna, uh, the science was natural history and dinosaur paleontology in particular. And that's because the United States, this is a kind of standard uh, story in American environmental history that uh, American kind of uh, inferiority complex with respect to Europe uh, uh, was overcome by kind of valorization, not just of nature, but a particular kind of nature, namely wilderness. So you can think of Thomas Jefferson's kind of obsession with the American Mastodon as a kind of early example of this. So American dinosaurs were considered to be kind of bigger and better than European dinosaurs, but also kind of European organisms in general. And therefore, American dinosaur paleontology was seen as a kind of very prestigious scientific undertaking. Uh, and it's worth mentioning here just very briefly that it's interesting that if you look a lot of, at a lot of the kind of philanthropic activities that American capitalists engaged in the late 19th century, they didn't just build natural history museums. They built all sorts of cultural institutions, including libraries, concert halls, universities, and so on and so forth, right? And if you look at, for example, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, it was mostly filled with artworks from Europe. Or if you look at Carnegie Hall, right, the kind of concert hall, mostly performing symphonic and other kinds of vocal music and so on and so forth, composed in Europe. There's only natural history museums that uh, the the kind of flow of cultural goods could be reversed. Indeed, American dinosaurs were being exported to Europe for display in major European centers of learning like Paris and London and Vienna in the late 19th century too. Okay, so dinosaur paleontology was a very prestigious kind of science because it was seen as distinctly American. And it was seen as one place in which the United States could rival uh, Europe as a sort of uh, a producer of scientific knowledge because of the kind of specimens that could be extracted from the American West. That began to change in the 20th century uh, for a couple of reasons, one of which has to do with changes in the scientific community. So uh, uh, the study of evolution changed. The, earlier I talked about how these 19th century paleontologists like Edward Drinker Cope and um, Othniel Charles Marsh, but especially Henry Fairfield Osborne, were particularly Darwinian in their approach to evolutionary biology. Uh, uh, in the early 20th century, especially after the 1930s or so, there was a kind of resurgence of Darwinian evo explanations of evolution. Uh, but Darwinian theories of evolution became highly mathemat mathematicized. So um, to study evolution meant to do a kind of statistical analysis of large numbers of organisms. And dinosaurs are just too rare to be studied in that way. So it's very difficult to apply the kinds of mathematical and statistical models that people began to develop in the mid-20th century to study Darwinian evolution to vertebrate fossils like dinosaurs. And so dinosaurs kind of became much less uh, prestigious as an object of scientific knowledge. At the same time, though, dinosaurs continued to be sort of icons of popular culture. So they became hugely popular in the late 19th century. And uh, as they became sort of less scientifically prestigious in the 20th century, they maintained their kind of popularity among ordinary people. And so there was a kind of sense that developed in the 20th century among many, many scientists, that dinosaur paleontology wasn't really a very serious science because it, it wasn't the kind of science where you could make serious contributions to evolutionary theory. You couldn't really st study dinosaurs statistically. It was really just something that was for the movies or maybe for like the exhibit displays in museums, but it wasn't something that kind of serious paleontologists were particularly excited about working on. Even people like Stephen Jay Gould, a late 20th century paleontologist, who's probably the most famous American paleontologist of the second half of the 20th century, credits dinosaurs as being his inspiration. The reason why he went into paleontology is because he so loved the dinosaur displays in the New York Natural History Museum. But when it came time to actually do his research, he worked on invertebrate fossils, particularly snails and other kind of invertebrate fossils, because they were sufficiently abundant to study using the sorts of statistical and mathematical techniques that I was just talking about. And that really hasn't changed until the very, very recent past. It's now become sort of dinosaurs have once again become scientifically prestigious. But yet again, that's, as I mentioned earlier, due to new discoveries in especially in northeastern China. So kind of the fate of the dinosaur has changed yet again, largely as a result of the migration of dinosaur paleontology from Europe and especially North America to China. You know, I wanted to ask one of the reasons that dinosaurs are becoming so popular in this period. Uh, they're all over in films and books. And I wonder if you give our listeners a sense of that. But is that tied then to a distinct sense of Americanness? Is that really about American exceptionalism? Definitely. Um, so one of the arguments I try to make in the book is that dinosaurs were used as a kind of 
tool or a technology to project a kind of well-worn story, a kind of you know, conventional trope of American exceptionalism back into prehistory. So again, if I'm, I'm, I suspect a lot of your listeners are familiar to the kind of well-known story about Thomas Jefferson and the American Mastodon. Jefferson's kind of obsession with the Mastodon is a sort of answer to the claim made by European naturalists like um, uh, this guy Buffon that American nature was degenerate when compared to the nature of the old world. Jefferson sort of held up the Mastodon as a sort of example of American greatness. And dinosaurs fed, fed into this story very, very directly. So dinosaurs were used as a way of kind of celebrating the natural fecundity, the sort of awesome achievements that were uh, kind of the sort of amazing wilderness that one can encounter in the United States. So they were deeply associated with the United States uh, uh, throughout much of certainly the 19th century, uh, starting in about the 1870s and 80s with their discovery in the American West, and then much of the 20th century up until the recent past. Um, And I think, yeah, that you're right, that that's part of the reason why um, as the United States became a kind of economic superpower, that a lot of popular culture came to be manufactured in the United States. And so it's no accident that as popular culture increasingly is that the United States kind of becomes a world center for the creation and export of kind of popular culture, kind of commercial popular culture, that therefore these what were seen to be kind of distinctly American creatures would feature prominently. And I think film is probably the best example of this. So as uh, kind of uh, Hollywood takes off as the sort of premier place for the production of blockbuster movies, dinosaurs uh, play an outsized role in the imagination of Hollywood filmmakers, uh, including some of the kind of, you know, some of the earliest uh, uh, animations, but also uh, all sorts of early films feature dinosaurs in the kind of very beginning of the 20th century. It's quite an amazing story, kind of how many early films prominently featured dinosaurs. Can you talk about the decline, too, of popular interest in dinosaurs after the 1920s? And a lot of us are probably more familiar with the revival uh, in the 1990s, you know, blockbuster movies like Jurassic Park. But there's a real nadir in the mid-20th century. Is that tied to the scientific community? Is that really a story about capitalism? What is, what's going on there, and why is there shift back and forth in popular interest? Yeah, so the, it's a complex story. So I think part of the answer has to do with – part of the immediate answer has to do with the Great Depression. So a lot of the research, this very prestigious research I was talking about that was taking place in the late 19th century was being paid for by wealthy philanthropists who were endowing these amazing uh, philanthropic museums of natural history. Um, And the funding for those kinds of museums and research at those kinds of museums began to dry up during the really the 1930s. So initially with the um, introduction of a permanent graduated income tax in the early 20th century, which made uh, some of the kind of conspicuous consumption that I was talking about earlier more difficult, but also a little more unsightly. And then especially with kind of the onset of the Great Depression um, uh, in the 1930s. So a lot of the funding kind of went away. But you might say, well, okay, so uh, philanthropic funding dried up. But of course, there's other sorts of funds. After the Second World War, there's the creation of a National Science Foundation. So why wasn't dinosaur paleontology as lavishly funded by um, uh, institutions like the NSF as, let's say, maybe molecular biology or other sorts of scientific enterprises? And here, I think the answer has to do with the kind of thing that you just referenced, which I was talking about earlier, which is kind of the loss of prestige, prestige among biologists of uh, not just paleontology, but vertebrate paleontology in particular. And this is to do, I think, mostly with, as I was mentioning before, some of the changes in evolutionary theory. So as evolution kind of became this uh, seen as, as, again, this Darwinian process of random mutation and natural selection, uh, People like uh, uh, population geneticists like uh, Sewell Wright and um, uh, Fisher and other population geneticists developed statistical and mathematical models with which to study evolution. And it just turns out that dinosaur fossils, because they're so rare, it's extremely difficult uh, to use dinosaur fossils as a kind of object with which to study evolution if your understanding of evolution is informed by these uh, uh, kind of statistical mathematical models, just because you need larger sample sizes than dinosaurs can give you, which is why invertebrate paleontology became much more important in the 20th century. Uh, Okay, so that's kind of to do with the decline of paleontology. And then what's kind of responsible for the resurgence? I think this is a really fascinating story. So I'd say there's two things going on. One of them is a, a 
change in the science of paleontology and in, in the science of, of evolutionary biology. And that's uh, to do with, um, uh, first of all, a certain group of paleontologists who called themselves paleobiologists. And Stephen Jay Gould is probably the most famous um, uh, proponent of this approach to paleontology, sort of actively um, incorporating some of these statistical and mathematical techniques, that I, modeling techniques that I was talking about into the field of paleontology, primarily using, as I said before, invertebrate fossils to do so. As they were doing that, though, vertebrate paleontologists, so people working on things like dinosaurs, these much more rare specimens, also began to sort of wonder about, well, to what extent can they use some of these newer techniques and, and kind of newer methodologies to study not just abundant invertebrate fossils, but also more rare vertebrate fossils. And really the kind of uh, place where that took off was the study of phylogeny. So kind of using statistical tools to try to reconstruct evolutionary trees from fossil evidence. So uh, using uh, parsimony analysis and likelihood analysis, various kind of often quite complex uh, statistical techniques to try to infer evolutionary relationships between different kinds of organisms, including extant and, and extinct organisms, based on both morphological features that one can read off the fossil record, for example, but also perhaps uh, molecular features that one can uh, uh, derive from sequencing DNA molecules. And as people started using these kinds of techniques to study the fossil record, including the fossil record of dinosaurs, a, um, an old idea that had initially been pioneered in the 19th century by a disciple of Darwin named Thomas Henry Huxley started to kind of reemerge and gained a huge amount of credence. And the idea was that dinosaurs are the extinct ancestors of modern birds. So the idea is that birds are directly descended from dinosaurs. So if you build a family tree of different kind of dinosaur lineages, particularly meat-eating dinosaur lineages, creatures like T-Rex and Velociraptor, et cetera, and you include birds in those kind of phylogenetic analysis, what you find is that birds, or what these paleontologists in the 1980s and 90s were finding, 70s, 80s, and 90s were finding, is that birds were nested deeply within the dinosaur family tree, which means that birds are a kind of dinosaurs. Birds are part of the group that we normally classify as dinosauria. And as a consequence, this implies, according to these paleontologists, that dinosaurs, in fact, did not go extinct, that dinosaurs continue to exist all around us. So anytime you go to the park and you're feeding the ducks, or if you're outside and you hear a bird song or anything like that, you're hearing or you're seeing a dinosaur, you're interacting with dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are absolutely all around us. And that's kind of that new phylogenetic, that new sort of evolutionary theory about the evolutionary relationship between dinosaurs and birds has had an absolutely transformative impact on the way that we understand not just the way dinosaurs were. So dinosaurs have been subsequently kind of recast as these very bird-like, as I said, active, perhaps even warm-blooded creatures, social, cooperative, not these kind of solitary brutes, but rather these active, colorful, uh, social creatures. But also, uh, kind of bird evolution has become a hugely hot topic in evolutionary research. So, kind of birds have sort of pulled dinosaur out of dinosaurs out of scientific obscurity and made them sort of scientifically prestigious again in a way that they just hadn't been in, in the kind of mid to late 19th, uh, 20th century. So that happened, and at the same time, there's these new fossil discoveries. So there's new kind of trace evidence being found in China, not the American West. So there's a kind of new set of methodologies that was developed, and there's a kind of migration of the paleontological community from Europe and North America into China with the rise of China as a kind of economic superpower during the late 20th and early 21st century. And it's no accident that if you, uh, the most important discoveries of dinosaurs in China are dinosaurs with feathers. So it's not only ancient birds like Archaeopteryx and Confuciusaurus and other kind of ancient birds that are shown to have had feathers, but even sort of meat-eating dinosaurs, very close relatives of dinosaurs like T-Rex and Velociraptors have now been found to have feathers. And so just further cementing this absolutely revolutionary ideas that dinosaurs are the ancient uh, ancestors of modern birds and therefore never did go extinct. Yeah, it's such a fascinating story. Lucas, we've taken up a lot of your time today. So before we go, let me ask you, what are you working on next? Yeah, so I've got a kind of cornucopia of projects. So I've got a lot of irons in the fire, you might say. So I'm writing a couple of articles at the moment uh, and then sort of working towards a couple of kind of larger book projects on the horizon. So some of the articles I'm working on, as I was just talking about, I've become really interested in the history of uh, paleontology in China and the kind of story of the development of paleontology in China. Uh, so I've... Uh, uh, Became, become very interested in some early American expeditions into especially China and Mongolia, the Gobi Desert, uh, but also just more broadly the kind of 
development of a paleontological community in China. The trouble there, of course, for me is that I don't read Chinese. I don't have access to a lot of the archival material in China. So I've been collaborating uh, with some uh, Chinese scholars to try to uh, see if, if, if we can kind of work together, if I can kind of bring some of my expertise in the history of paleontology and the history of science more broadly to the table and maybe combine that with some of their expertise in uh, both paleontology uh, and its history, but also uh, having access to and being able to kind of read Chinese source material to kind of bring these two stories together, this kind of uh, story of American paleontology with the story of uh, Chinese paleontology uh, and write some articles on that theme. So that's one thing I'm quite interested in. Another thing I've, I've sort of been working on is, uh, and this is a, a kind of book project that I'm uh, starting to work on, is the history of organization and how ideas about what you might call organismality, so organis- ideas about the biological organism, shaped ideas in political economy uh, about sort of, this gets back to some of what we were talking about earlier with kind of progressivist theories of evolution. So how evolution was kind of, excuse me, the kind of development of the uh, corporate political economy in the early 20th century was often modeled on a certain view about the evolution of organisms as becoming ever sort of more integrated and more cooperative entities over time. So that's another thing I'm sort of working on. I'm, 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 I've an article that I've started working on about uh, a well-known American sociologist uh, who has had a background in paleontology named Lester Frank Ward and his kind of contributions to this way of thinking about evolution and how those ideas were then taken up uh, in political economy to sort of understand um, uh ideas about kind of the corporate reconstruction of the U.S. political economy in the early 20th century. And then finally, a kind of second larger book project that I've become interested in starting to work on is a history of the Ice Age idea. So I've become really interested in kind of ideas about the deep past and how uh, uh, people in the 19th century sort of tried to produce knowledge about the deep past. And so in this book that, I, that we've been talking about today, I was uh, sort of looking at the history of these amazing organisms, dinosaurs. And uh, one thing I've become more interested in recently is the history of climate, uh, for obvious reasons having to do with anthropogenic climate change, right? So, but as I became, was thinking about these questions, I sort of became very interested in, well, where does this idea that climate is capable of massive change over historical time come from? And I, I sort of, through that, became really interested in the history of uh, this 19th century idea, an idea that really emerged in the kind of middle, early to middle of the 19th century, that there was a period in the Earth's history, or perhaps several periods in the Earth's history, where the Earth's climate was radically different from the way that it is today. And in fact, that it might have been dramatically colder at some time in the past than it is in the present. And so I've started kind of slowly thinking about um, uh, writing a book that would look at kind of the initial development of this idea of the Ice Age hypothesis, how that idea changed. Uh, over time, as as kind of new ideas about climate uh, emerged uh, uh, during the late 19th and early 20th century, and then also kind of cultural history of how people imagined the Ice Age. So uh, sort of how the Ice Age, this particular period in the Pleistocene, the most recent Ice Age, was often depicted visually and in other kinds of uh, narrative contexts and so on and so forth, and how that mirrored some preoccupations, certain kinds of racial preoccupations uh, that were common in the late 19th century, ideas about white supremacy and how climate figured into that. Those are wonderful and, and really timely projects. So Lucas Rappel, his new book, Assembling the Dinosaur, is out now through Harvard University Press. Lucas, thanks so much for being on the show, and we hope to have you back again soon. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really enjoyed it. Of course. You take care. You too. You too.